Well, happy Easter, everybody. My name is Jason, and I'm on the teaching team here at Madison Church. And whether this is your favorite day of the year to watch online or your parents are forcing you to watch online because it's Easter, whatever the reason, I think you're here for a reason. And we're so glad that you're tuning in. You know, for those who are followers of Jesus, today is like the day. It's like the Super Bowl for Christians. It's the day where you win, the part where Jesus, the king, claims his victory. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you love that. And you love it for many reasons, but probably the reason you love it the most is we all hate losing. Now, I hate losing probably more than anybody else. When my daughter, Genny, was five years old, she would always play me in this game called Spot It. Now, if you don't know the game called Spot It, it's just a game from Satan himself. It's the worst game you could ever play, but Genny loved Spot It. And here's how it works. Pretty simple. You have these different cards and you put two next to each other and there's all these symbols on them and you have to find the two similar symbols in the cards. And you think this is easy, but it's much more difficult than you think it is. And when you finally see the uh, same uh, symbol, you shout Spot It and then you collect the cards and the person with the most cards wins. And so we were playing this game and I thought, you know what, I, I need to make sure Genny wins. She's five after all. I want to build up her ego. But the problem was, like, she was way better at this than I was. I, I wasn't even trying to help her win. She was dominating me. I couldn't find similar things. She would just kept saying, spot it, spot it, spot it, spot it, spot it. And she had this big stack of cards. I had like two and finally, two cards came down. I'm like, this time I'm, I'm going to get it. And sure enough, it, after uh, about 30 seconds, I, I, I saw the two images and I shouted, spot it. And Kenny looked at me, and this is no joke. Kenny looked at me and said, Dad, I was wondering when you were going to see that. And I looked at my five-year-old daughter and I said, are you letting me win? And she said, yes, Dad. I need you to feel better about yourself. We don't play spotted anymore. But I, I hate losing. I hate losing to Genny. I hate losing to my son, Micah, who's 12. We uh, oftentimes, in fact, most weekends we're together, we'll, we'll play chess together. And just the other day we were playing chess. And within five moves, he looked at me and he said, check mate. And he tipped over my king. I love my kids, but I'm never playing games with them again. You can play with them, but I hate losing. You know, my losing ways reminded me of a true story I recently heard of two men who went into an art museum. And in that art museum was a picture, and you're going to see it on the screen, was a, a painting that's uh, often referred to as checkmate. And it's a picture of, uh, of two people playing chess, and one of them looks like the devil, and they're down to their last piece. And it, the thought is that it's checkmate. Well, these two guys were looking at this painting, and one of them was actually a chess champion. And he and his friend are standing there and he's looking up. And he said, there's, there's something about this painting that's just not right. And his friend's getting kind of a little annoyed by his chess champion friend. He said, you know what? If you're going to just stare here, I'm going to go and uh, look at the other painting. So he off and went to the rest of the museum and the chess champion was staring there at the painting. And finally, his friend came back after a while and he said, did you figure it out? And he said, yeah, I figured it out. The, the title of the painting is all wrong. It says checkmate, but it's not correct. Because if you look at the board, the king still has one more move. The king still has one more move. And that's the story of Easter. 
that the king, Jesus, Jesus the king, still has one more move. He has one more move for me. He has one more move for you. He has one more move in our lives. The problem is, so many of us feel like it's been checkmate. We lost our job or our job is hanging by a thread. Checkmate. Our dream marriage has become a nightmare or maybe ended altogether. Checkmate. Our once secure financial situation now is dwindling quickly during COVID. Checkmate. The kid that we raised and we poured our heart into doesn't talk to us anymore. Checkmate. Our health that used to be so strong now isn't. Checkmate. Our emotional well-being has gone south. We're racked by worries and fears and depression. Checkmate. Our once close relationship with God now feels so distant. Checkmate. See, all of us in some way or another, big or small, feel like life is saying checkmate to us. But Jesus is saying to you on this Easter, the king, I, Jesus the king, still has one more move for you. This is what really the story, the narrative of Easter is all about. Mark 16, we read this familiar story. It says this, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome, those are three women, brought spices so that they may go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. And as they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting at the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You're looking for Jesus of Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. You know, as we see in this familiar, familiar story that Jesus was victorious over death, that the king had one more move, we realize that there are three moves he wants to make in our lives. The first is this. Jesus, the king, wants to move you from pain to power. He wants to move you from pain to power. This is what he did for the women that day as they came to the tomb. They were in extreme pain. They felt like life had dealt them a big checkmate. And the reason they felt this way is that they had followed Jesus everywhere. Mary Magdalene had seven demons in her until one day she met Jesus and he cast them out and gave her a new life. Mary, the mother of James, saw Jesus take her boys, James and John, and make something of him. And, and they, they followed him, and she followed Jesus as well. And in fact, the Bible says that these women were following him everywhere he went. And these women, they, they followed this king who was different than any other king. He said, my kingdom is not a kingdom of revenge, but of forgiveness. He said, my kingdom isn't about being powerful, but being humble. He said, my kingdom was not about following the rules, but being in a relationship. His kingdom was so different and it was so attractive and they loved it and they followed him and they gave their lives to this king. And they followed him into Jerusalem. They watched as he rode in on a donkey and the crowds were shouting, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But they knew the crowds were missing the point. You see, the crowds wanted a political savior. The crowds wanted Jesus to overthrow Rome and, and put Israel back in power. 
They didn't know that his kingdom was bigger than one nation, was bigger than politics. And they watched as just a few days later, this crowd who once shouted Hosanna turned their backs on Jesus. They watched as he was arrested and put on trial. They heard the lies that the witnesses said about him, the lies that they knew, they knew were so far from the truth. They watched as the guards beat him and whipped him. They watched as his once sound body became unrecognizable. And they tried to care for him, the Bible says, along the way. They heard the crowd say, crucify him, crucify him. They watched as he was stripped and flogged and then forced to carry his own cross. And they watched as the, the, the weight of that cross pushed him to the ground. And they saw him nailed to that cross. They watched him hang there, gasping for air. And yet their king never changed. He did what he always did, because even as he was dying, gasping for air, he said, Father, forgive them. They don't have a clue what they're doing. And they watched as he breathed his last. Checkmate. The Bible says that it was actually the women who, after everybody had gone, they just sat there looking at the place where Jesus died. And so much pain. Pain because the one that they had loved and given their life to was no longer around. Pain because they didn't know what would be next. Pain because they were asking these questions. Why this? How this? What now? For the next day, things didn't get better. It was Saturday, the Sabbath, and being good Jews, they couldn't do anything on that day. And so they waited alone in their pain. Sunday comes and they just want to honor him. They know he's dead. They knew it was over. They just wanted to honor the memory of him and put some spices on his body. And so they walk to his tomb in in so much anguish to say a final goodbye. They're thinking checkmate. But what they didn't realize was that their king still had one more move. And when they arrived at the tomb, the stone, that huge thing, the stone is rolled away and the guards are lying on the ground as if they're dead. And they walk into the tomb and there's an angel sitting there. And Mark says this, and they were alarmed. It's like the understatement of the century. I love that. And they were alarmed. Oh, yeah, they were kind of slightly shocked by it. No, the the word alarmed actually means there was like this intense emotional state of complete and utter shock. I mean, think about the thing that could never happen happening. I mean, think about if you're a Bears fan, that the Bears actually win the Super Bowl. I mean, you would be alarmed. You'd be in such shock. Bears fan, we love you. But on a more serious note, multiply that feeling by about a million, and that's what they were feeling. And as they're in shock, this young man in white, this angelic presence speaks, don't be alarmed. You're looking for Jesus the Nazarene who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here just as he told you. In other words, he had one more move. And in that moment, it all clicks for them. They remember that Jesus said he would rise from the dead. They remember that he promised he would beat death. And in that moment, the pain goes away and they are overwhelmed with the power of the king. Let me ask you, where in your life are you experiencing pain? Maybe it's a relational pain. Maybe it's emotional pain. Maybe it's a spiritual pain. Maybe it's a pain you don't even have words for, but it's there. Some good friends of mine, Shane and Lori, know what pain is like. Several years ago, they began a journey that was very, very painful Lori shared with me this email, and 
I want to read it to you. She writes, Shane and I wanted to start a family and were thrilled to discover I was pregnant within six months of our married life. But our joy quickly turned into sorrow when I had complications with the pregnancy and endured a miscarriage. It took well over a year before I became pregnant again. Several ultrasounds proved our baby had a strong heartbeat and we were relieved. But our dreams came crashing down again as I suffered complications and miscarried again. We were heartbroken, could not make sense of the loss. I thought babies were a gift from God. At least that's what everyone says. I love God, but didn't he love me too? Was I being punished for something? Was my faith being tested? Under strict doctor's care, I became pregnant a third time. We were tentative yet hopeful as my weekly ultrasounds proved our baby was healthy and growing. However, early in my second trimester, I was horrified as I was rushed to the hospital for hemorrhaging. We were sure all was lost, but again, ultrasounds showed our baby was safe and alive. This was an answer to all of our prayers. And for the next two months, my pregnancy was full of peace, joy, and anticipation. But on a beautiful spring day, I found myself not feeling well. I ended up in the hospital. I was in labor. I was 20 weeks pregnant. My water broke. I endured 48 hours of labor knowing my baby was alive but not going to live. My body was in excruciating pain, my soul in agonizing torment. I silently pleaded with God to take me too. I could not fathom how I would be able to live through another loss. On May 21, 1999, our perfect daughter was born to forever live in our hearts. There are no words to describe the depths of my grief. There was little anyone could do to console me. I struggled with my faith. How could a loving God allow me to go through so much pain? We struggled a lot over the next few years. I lost my job. We lost two more pregnancies and our marriage suffered. But our family finally blossomed in October of 2000 when we met Jacob, our son whom we adopted and our lives are forever changed. It has taken many, many years to stop asking God why he allowed me to go through such great loss. In John 16, Jesus says, In this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Because of Jesus, I have the victory. I love that story. And actually, the story gets even better. They, Shane and Lori, not too long ago, adopted another teenage boy. And they're now a family of four and doing well. But I love that story because they, they were experienced that the king had one more move for them. In fact, had a couple more moves for them. What they thought was checkmate wasn't checkmate. They moved from pain into power. And that your King Jesus wants to move you from pain into power. And he can do this a couple of ways. One of the ways he can do it is he can change your circumstances for you. I mean, he's powerful enough. He beat death. So he can, he can beat the situation you're in. He can heal you from that disease. He can give you the job that you want. He can... Uh, cause you to have a financial blessing, whatever it is, Jesus does have that power. And I hope he gives that to you because sometimes that's the way he moves you from pain to power. But sometimes his resurrection power works a little differently. Instead of changing your circumstances for you, he changes you for your circumstances. In fact, things might actually get worse, but he gives you a piece that, man, you're like, where does this come from? Your marriage might actually end in divorce, but he lets you survive it and actually thrive in it. 
It's unexpected, but it's real and it's powerful and it's still a miracle. But either way, he moves you from pain into power because that's what Jesus the King does. Paul would write this, that that power that's in you is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead. You have that resurrection power. Jesus the King wants to move you from pain into power. But there's another move Jesus wants to make. It's this, that Jesus the King wants to move you from the margins to his mission. He wants to move you from the margin to his mission. That's what he did with the women in the story. Let me explain. See, in Jesus' day, women were not allowed to follow a rabbi like Jesus. Men ruled. Women were just property. In fact, women weren't even thought of as a human being, really. I mean, they they were kind of like substandard. And a man could divorce his wife just by clapping three times. In fact, there was a prayer that men would pray each day in the temple. And it went like this. Thank you, O Lord, that thou hast not made me a Samaritan, a Gentile, or a woman. And into this man's world, I should write a song like that, but into this man's world came a new type of teacher, a new type of rabbi who said, you know what? We're going to level the playing field here. This world is no longer going to be only about men being in power. No, we're going to level the playing field and women, you matter too. You can be a follower of me too. And they were. In fact, scripture says that they became his disciples and actually financed his ministry. They bankrolled Jesus. It's awesome. He didn't just do this with women though. He did it with other people on the margin. He gave value to the poor, to the lepers, to no one, to people nobody else would even go near. He touched them. He healed them. He gave them value. To 12 teenagers who were the rejects of society, he said, I'm going to make you my 12 disciples. Come and follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. When all Jews would never cross racial barriers to be with Samaritans. In fact, they called Samaritans dogs and half-breeds. Jesus not only sat down with a Samaritan woman, but in one of his most famous stories, made the hero of a story a good Samaritan. I mean, this is mind-blowing. He's crossing gender lines. He's crossing socioeconomic lines. He's crossing racial lines. Jesus is saying, I'm going to move you from the margin to my mission. So it should not be a surprise that in the resurrection story here in Mark, people on the margin, women, again are at center stage. Here's why. Mary, Mary, and Salome. I think that's an awesome term. It sounds like a band. Mary, Mary, and Salome, the singing group, were the first witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. In fact, Jesus, uh, the angel says, I want you to go and tell people that Jesus is alive. Now, this is mind-blowing. Absolutely mind-blowing. Because in that day and age, Women were not allowed to serve as witnesses in legal proceedings. In fact, if someone committed a murder and 100 women saw it, but there was no man there, the person would get off completely free because women had no legal status as witnesses. Incidentally, many scholars point to the fact that the women were the key witnesses as proof that the resurrection actually happened because nobody would make up a story in that day and age where women were the key witnesses. So in a culture that put women on the margin, in a culture that said checkmate to them, Jesus moves them to the center of his mission and uses them to be the mouthpiece of the most important event in human history. He moved them from the margin to the epicenter of his mission. I love basketball. And if you've been following March Madness, you've probably seen yet again this year the story of Sister Jean of 
Loyola Chicago basketball team. I, I love the story of Sister Jean. She's actually a 101-year-old nun who not only is a, a fan of Loyola, not only goes to all the games, but actually sends scouting reports to the team. She's their chaplain, but she's also like their scout and gives them advice as to what to do and how to play better. And this year they got to the Sweet 16, but Sister Jean actually became very famous three years ago when she was at a very young age of 98 and where Loyola got to the final four. And the thing about Sister Jean is uh, she's not an ordinary nun. I mean, she's, she's not your picture of, a, uh, of what you think of. She's just amazing. Recently, somebody asked Sister Jean, what did you give up for Lent? And I love her answer. She said, I gave up losing. Don't <laughs> you love that? I gave up losing. She's part of a Cinderella story. I gave up losing. Now, here's my point, and I do actually have one. This is what Jesus says to those of you who feel like you're on the margin. You know what? For this Easter, you know what you get to give up for Lent? You get to give up losing. I'm going to make you my Cinderella story. He says the same thing to all of us. Maybe you feel like you're on the margin because you don't measure up in school. Maybe you feel like you're on the margin because your boss keeps telling you you're, you're a failure. Maybe you're on the margin of your marriage and feel like you've lost your voice. Maybe you're on the margin because society has put you on the margin. Maybe you're on the margin because you are retired and nobody seems to notice you. Maybe you're on the margin because of your race or your ethnicity or your socioeconomic status or you name it. You're on the margin for some reason. Jesus wants you to know today you don't have to stay on the margin. You don't have to lose anymore. You are my masterpiece. I did not make a mistake when I created you. I want to move you from the margin to my mission I have one more move for you. So get in the game. Give up losing. You're my Cinderella story. See, Jesus the King wants to move you from the margin to his mission. He wants to move you from pain to power, but probably most importantly, he wants to move you from shame to love. Jesus the King wants to move you from shame to love. You know, it's fascinating not just who's there, but who's not there in the story. The disciples, the male disciples who were with Jesus every day for three years, aren't there in the story. On one level, they're probably not there because like the woman, they couldn't conceive of a resurrection. On another level, they're probably not there because they were probably running for their lives. They're probably thinking if the Romans can kill Jesus, they can kill us too. But I think on a deeper level, they're not there because they're so ashamed. They're ashamed because the moment that Jesus needed them the most they bailed. Matthew 26 says this, then all the disciples deserted him and fled. I mean, think about it. The reality that they now live with is that the last thing they did before the person they loved the most died is they abandoned him. And that's what 10 of them did, but one took it even further, Peter. Peter who said, Jesus, I'm going to follow you to death. He not only abandoned Jesus, he denied him. Asked three times, do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? Do you know this guy? Aren't you a follower of him? I've seen you with him. Aren't you with him, Peter? And each time he said, no, no, no. And these disciples, and especially Peter, wonder if they can ever come back from that. I mean, what good are they if they can't even be there for their king in the moment that he needs them the most? They're in deep shame. And so that's why the angel's instructions here are so shocking. 
You would think the angel would say, you know, go tell those disciples that Jesus has some strong words waiting for them. Or, or go tell those disciples that Jesus might, if they grovel enough, might be nice to them again. And certainly they wouldn't even mention Peter. Peter's, I mean, there's a line you cross and Peter went over here. So, I mean, Peter's a lost car, cause. I mean, there's no redeeming that. But the angel doesn't. Look at verse 7. Go tell his disciples. Now, notice this. And Peter, that he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you'll see him just as he told you. In other words, just tell those bozos that Jesus still wants them. Tell them that there's nothing they could do to have Jesus stop from loving them. And tell that Peter who speaks far quicker than he should, who speaks before he thinks, tell him that Jesus is especially fond of him. Just tell him that Jesus hasn't changed his mind about him. You see, this is the message of Jesus in a nutshell. Because my guess is that some of you, like me, feel like maybe you're just too far gone. And maybe some of you feel like Peter. I mean, if people knew the mistakes you've made, they would know that you don't really belong in a church. If people knew the words you've said, they would say, you're a disgrace. If people knew the addictions you have, oh man, they'd run and hide. If people really knew how afraid you were, they would say, what's wrong with you? Everybody else is more spiritual. They have their act together, but not you. You're a mess. And you think that when God looks at you, he says, checkmate. But here's the deal. The only one who gets to say anything about you is the one who created you. And that one is King Jesus, the risen one, the victorious king. And he says to you this one thing, I, the king, have one more move for you. He's saying to you, you have no clue. You have no clue how much I love you, especially you. Especially you, Peter. Especially you, Jennifer. Especially you, Jason. Especially you. Oh, I am especially fond of you. I'm making my move to you. I have one more move. But if you're ever going to receive that, you have to make your move towards me. Jesus is saying to you today, since I rose from the dead, you never have to be in checkmate. I, the king, have one more move. But you need to move to me as well. And so the question is, will you make your move?